Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Cultured or Not. Um, as you guys know, 2020 has seen an outpouring of literature from the South Asian community, not just literature, but just art in many forms, whether it be film, whether it be TV, whether it be music, and then of course, literature as well. So in a previous season, in season one, we did a couple episodes where we talked about South Asian art, we talked about South Asians in Hollywood, and we also talked about what's actually changing in Hollywood to make this change possible for us to be able to see more content produced by South Asians on just the, on the big screen, as well as on the streaming platforms when it comes to Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, and a big market driver for those were these streaming platforms. I'm personally curious about what's also causing the change that we're seeing in the literary community. So this year, I had the extreme pleasure of reading Well-Behaved Indian Women, which I read first, um, even though it came out July 2020, so it came out later. And then I also read The Henna Artist, um, which came out in March 2020. So Well-Behaved Indian Women was written by Soumya Dave, and I really enjoyed it. It featured stories that we're really familiar with when it came to everyday women that one could relate to. And then with Alka's book, Alka Joshi wrote The Henna Artist, um, which was actually voted the number one book of best book of 2020 in Canada. Um, and it also was Goodreads top 10 for historical fiction and Goodreads top 10 for best debut. Um, and it's in Reese's book club. So of course I had to pick it up. Actually, that book was recommended to me by a couple of coworkers and I loved that it was historical fiction. So two very different angles, um, but still featuring strong South Asian women. And I figured I have to get Soumya and Alka on the podcast to discuss what's caused these changes, what motivates them and what they're excited about. So thank you so much, Soumya and Alka for joining me. Thank oh, you. our pleasure. Thank you so much for having us. Of course. Um, so yeah, I mean, before like we get into any more about your books, let's hear a little bit about you guys. I'm sure our audience is really curious. Um, Somia, why don't you go first? Tell us a bit about you and how you got into writing. Sure. I'm Somia Dave. Uh, as you said, my book came out in July of 2020. I'm also a psychiatrist and a new mom. I have been writing since I was a little kid. I was that girl who wrote in her journals and, and loose leaf sheets of paper and let out all my angst in words. <laughs> and I always dreamt of becoming a writer, but I never thought it was something that, that people could really do. I didn't know anybody in creative fields growing up. So it was a far off dream. And then as I grew up and I struggled to find stories with South Asian characters living their lives and going through their daily things, I, I thought, why not write a book that, that covers relationships from a South Asian perspective? So I started with the base idea actually 10 years ago, and mm. it was over a decade of rejections and rewrites and learning um, that I went from writing that first draft of Well-Behaved Indian Women to getting a publishing deal. So it's been quite a journey, and I, I think that I've learned so much, but I would say that I've always been a writer. It may have just taken me time to really tap into that part of myself and to really put it into fruition. Ah, well, I have one thing in common with you, Sonia, <laughs> and that is I also worked on The Hannah Artist for 10 years uh, before it saw the light of day uh, with a publisher, but... I never dreamed about being a writer. I wasn't somebody who wrote in my journals all the time. I always wanted to be an artist. I wanted to be a graphic artist or a commercial artist or an art director in an ad agency. But the interesting thing is, is that every time I would apply for something that was art related, people would say, well, you know, you're actually a really good writer. Why don't we hire you as a writer? And this happened to me when I went to work in ad agencies. I really wanted to be the one doing the pretty uh, sets for all of the commercials. And, uh, you know, I just wanted to do the, the pretty colorful things. 
And they said, no, 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 you're a really good writer. It's harder for us to find good writers. So we'll hire you as, as a writer. And so I kind of sort of bumbled my way into it. And then I found out that I really kind of enjoyed it. Uh, and I got to combine a lot of the sensory images that come to my head as an artist. I could combine them with my writing. And that was so much pleasure for me in writing The Henna Artist. So I finally had a chance to combine these two parts of me, the verbal and the visual, uh, into something that uh, turned into this novel uh, and now has turned into two other novels that are going to complete the trilogy. So it's really not anything I planned. I call myself an accidental writer for that reason. <laughs> wow, that's really inspiring, actually. So for Elka, for you, what, were you primarily in ads for most of your career until you came into writing full form? Yeah, I was in advertising and marketing. So I oh, was cool. either writing and developing brochures or websites or ad campaigns or marketing campaigns. That's exactly the kind of thing that I was doing before I went into writing. You know, I, I went into writing because there was a recession because um, in 2008, there was this big mortgage crisis in uh, all over the world and it affected my business. Uh, my, my business was my, running my ad agency. So um, I thought, okay, as long as I don't have enough work, what can I do for the next two years while I twiddle my thumbs? And I could get into an MFA program and really devote two years full time to doing this craft called fiction writing. Mm -hmm. And that's where the genesis of the henna artist started. And then from there on out, it was just like Somia was saying about her uh, trajectory. It was like rewriting and rewriting and rewriting. And you know, now that the book is published, it's probably the 30th draft that I wrote of this particular book. Wow. Okay, and Somia, for you, you're a psychiatrist full-time, right? I, I work part-time. Okay, okay, you work part-time. But that's still a lot to balance with writing the book as well. Yes, absolutely. I, I found that, you know, I started really working on the book during medical school and I found that I just had to always tell myself that I had two jobs because mm -hmm. it was too easy for me if I kept it as a hobby, which I think it's great if, if that is how it stayed. I just wanted to finish a product. And I knew that for me, I had to tell myself this is a job. And it was really helpful in a way on a personal level because I was so used to getting good grades and people telling me, oh, you're doing such a good job and you get the seal of approval for, for being in med school and following this path. And and this was something that people didn't really approve of or they didn't really understand. Mm -hmm. So it gave me an opportunity to pursue something because I really wanted to. And I'm grateful for that. And it also taught me how to carve out and protect time for something I cared about. So through medical school, I would write on the weekends. And then in residency, I would just write whenever I wasn't on call or on my post-call days, that would be a full writing day. So I think that's also part of why it took a long time, but I'm really grateful that I learned how to draw those boundaries because of writing. Yeah, I think it takes a really, really long time. I think part of the reason I even wanted to do this episode is because my own personal motivation for even wanting to get to know you guys is that I'm kind of in the same boat. I'm struggling to get my book written. I'm, I don't know, it hasn't been 10 years yet, but I think like it's just, it's been two years at least and, and I'm struggling with it and, and powering through like page by page, it takes such a long time. And then and then I think about the long road ahead because I'm thinking, okay, I have a full-time job in tech, but I'm also working on this novel on the side. Once I get this first draft written, I'm gonna have to rewrite it and rewrite it. And then I, I write a lot of personal essays. And then every time I send those for publication to publications that would pr publish opinion articles, et cetera, I get rejected even on those. So I'm thinking like, what is the end game here? Is this ever gonna see the light of day, you know? So it's, it's, it's hard. <laughs> 
It's hard. I, and I don't know, I would love to hear Alka's thoughts on this, but I do believe everybody's journey looks different. And so for sure, it might take much longer than you, you think it will. And maybe that means 10 years, but that could mean a different number as well. And I think that's part of the beauty of it is that everyone's journey really is different. And that, that process of growth and learning the writing process and the craft is just so different. And, and you know, that, can, that uncertainty can be scary, but it can also be really rewarding. During my MFA program, I found a mentor uh, and, uh, you know, she had written a book that I just loved. And I thought one of these days, I'm going to write a book like that. It was historical fiction. It had a very strong female protagonist and it was taking place in Iran. And I thought, oh my gosh, you know, I love this. And, um, so I asked her one day, how long did it take you to write your debut novel? And she said nine years. And I remember <laughs> thinking in my head so clearly, I remember thinking, it's not going to take me that long. <laughs> <laughs> not me. <laughs> oh man, I trumped her by a year. But um, also during those 10 years, you know, a lot of life is lived. And yeah. so you are taking, uh, you know, a year off here, two years off there, five months off here. You, you're not writing continuously during those 10 years, or at least I definitely was not. Because at the end of my MFA program, I was probably third or fourth draft into this novel and um, the recession had abated. And so I had more business again and I had to get back to work because I have a mortgage, you know, we all have bills that we have to pay. So we all have to work. And um, so then I was back at work again and then, uh, then my mother died. And so mm -hmm. then I was like, oh my God, you know, I don't want to work on a novel that I dedicated to my mother and wrote as a result of my mother's, you know, repression in her arranged marriage. And so I really need to um, just step away from this. It was just too painful. So for two years, I didn't even do anything on it. So there were a lot of um, time, uh, times that I took off from the novel, but I actually think that's very helpful to a writer. Um, I do not believe in constant and consistent, um, you know, uh, barrage of work that you have to do. I do not have a daily schedule. I do not have a daily practice that says I have to write for three hours every day from 5 a.m. to 8 a.m. or anything like that. Um, I write when I have enough formulated in my head that I can immediately transfer what I've been thinking about in my head onto a piece of paper or onto my computer. Mm -hmm. So um, I definitely believe that time away from your work especially if it's a large piece of work like a novel, is very, very helpful to you as a creative person. You need time off. You need your brain to recharge and you need to rethink the things that you have already written. Very, very well said and very inspiring. Makes me feel better about myself, actually. <laughs> but yeah, I, I agree with that. And actually, while we're on the subject, um, Alka, I wanted to talk to you and ask you a little bit about um, how the idea for the henna artist came to you. So the book is set in 1950s India. It's particularly interesting for the time period that it's in because it's in that sort of liminal space right after partition. Um, and so India has just been freed of the colonial rule. It's just been freed of the British, but the the vestiges, the sort of the classism and all of that still remains. Um, but then again, when, when you read the book and the setting of it, it still sort of feels like modern India, but then not that much has changed. So I would love to know about your journey, the idea and sort of the research you did to get to where the book is today. I started the book off as a, a reimagining of my mother's life. My mother at the age of 18 in 1955 was arranged in a marriage to my dad. 
And mm-hmm. she was in college at the time. She was studying psychology, Sonia. <laughs> and um, she really thought that she'd like to continue studying that. But of course, she didn't have a say-so in that. She was an obedient girl. And so she did what her father told her. She was brought into the room. My father was sitting there with his family. And so they kind of looked at each other. They met that one time before they walked around the fire the next time they saw each other, you know, seven times. So, um you know, my mother's life was never her own because in short, four short years after that, she has three kids. She's constantly either tending to us or to her husband. And my dad was uh, a young engineer in Rajasthan. So he kept getting promoted and we would be moving from city to city to city. So she had to make sure all of those moves went smoothly. And then I think 10 years into their marriage, he said, okay, now I want to go get my doctorate. And there's a university in um, the United States that is doing the kind of research that I want to pursue. So then they're moving to the United States and she has to now get us, all of us acclimated to a new culture. So I wanted to give my mom a life in fiction that she didn't have in reality. I wanted to give her a life where she got to choose all of the things that determine her destiny. You know, she gets to choose what she wants to do for a living. She gets to choose how she wants to be. She gets to choose the house she wants to live in. She gets to choose the kind of family she wants to create. And these are all things that as I saw in my mother um, growing up, I just saw her being repressed. I just saw her not being happy with her life. I just saw her, um, you know, many times I could see that she would have wanted to do something a little differently than my father had planned for all of us. So um, while I love my father uh, equally and love my mother equally, uh, I think that the way that the system was set up for them in India with this arranged marriage, uh, my father had all the power and my mother had none of it. So I wanted to change that for her in fiction. So this is how I start out. I I start out with, I'm gonna reimagine something for my mother. But as I kept adding more characters in the novel, I realized what I'm really writing about is the fact that I believe every woman deserves to have all of the choices in front of her that will help determine her destiny. You know, stop trying to keep choices away from her that are going to help her make a full blown decision. And I think, I I don't know, Somia, you can uh, tell us maybe how your family was, but I ended up with two parents who became extremely progressive once we arrived in America. So once we arrived in America, you know, all bets were off. My mother raised me to make all of my own choices. She said, honey, you sleep with whomever you want. Just make sure that you have birth control. We're going to go to the doctor. We're going to get you that birth control. So when you go away to college, you are not going to be pregnant. She said, one of the things I want to make sure is that you are going to um, be financially self-sufficient, never, ever depend on a man to, um, you know, to live your life. So you need to make sure that you are financially whole before you get married. Okay, so this is my, my mother's advice to me, which I think is phenomenal for an Indian woman who was raised in an arranged marriage. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm only like 17, 18 when she's telling me this. And uh, then my father always said, honey, I know you want to be an artist. So you do what you want to do in your life. Just make sure that you can support yourself because I'm not going to be supporting you. You need to support yourself. So these are the kind of messages that I got from my parents. And I really feel that all women should receive these messages as early as possible so that they can become the people that they are destined to become, not the people that somebody else wants them to be. Yeah, definitely. I think that's that's really interesting to hear that your parents were so progressive because it sounds like when they moved here, it was the 1960s or early 70s. 
So I feel like if you think about historically what was going on in the U.S. at that time as well, there was the whole counterculture movement and like everyone was sort of coming to their own. Women had a lot more rights than they had. I think like that whole women should embrace their own bodies and be in charge of their own bodies movement was happening in the 60s in the U.S. anyway, right? So I think like it's such an interesting time for your parents to move over from India and sort of start embracing all of that and then with your mom taking you to get the birth control, etc. It makes a lot of sense, but at the same time, it's kind of shocking as well because if you think about how drastic and of a change that is from the background that they were coming from to where they are and actually the dynamic you mentioned of your dad having a lot of the the power in the family reminds me of um somia in your book um nandini's husband i'm forgetting his name right now it starts with an r ranjith yeah ranjith yeah so uh i feel like there is a lot of that dynamic in your book where um nandini is always having to sacrifice her career even though both of their, them are doctors um, and Ranjith kind of has all the power until Nandini is like, no, I'm going to make my own way and like actually stake out my claim. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about the inspirations behind your book and what led you to write it? Sure. So uh, again, I started the book over a decade ago. And originally, I actually wanted to write a romantic comedy about planning a big fat Desi wedding. It was a super simple <laughs> idea in my early 20s. And I thought, you know, I haven't really seen so much of this in books. It would be so much fun because every Desi wedding I'd been to by that point just was quite an adventure on its own. You know, all the events, the food, opinions, all of that. So it started out as a love triangle between three characters. And I kept it that way for about three or four drafts um, over the following following years. And then when I was in medical school during my third year, which is when we did our clinical rotations and got a glimpse of every different specialty within medicine, I started experiencing so much sexism and racism and actually to a point where it was on a daily basis. It, I was doing my rotations in rural Georgia. And I think that on many days of those rotations, I may have been the only person of color some patients and some staff members saw. And after one particularly tough shift, um, I went back to the on-call room they had for medical students. And the first question that came to my mind was, what would Nandini do? Because at that time she was a character just as Simran's mom. She didn't have her own storyline in the book the way she does now. And I thought, you know, she trained in the generation before mine. She must have experienced this on an entirely different level. How did someone like her handle this? So I started talking to family friends of mine who, who are Nandini's age and also did their residencies at the same time I envisioned her to have done hers. And I learned about the things they heard and experienced. And I was so fascinated by it. And I started writing a few chapters from her perspective. And then the day of my own wedding, I actually got 10 rejections in a row on the book. And I was reading my email checking and seeing no, 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 no. But actually every single rejection expressed some sort of love for Nandini and her storyline and those few chapters that I had written. And a few of them then asked, oh, would you ever consider adding more of this character into the book? So then throughout residency, I added more and more of her in and realized that I was trying to write a mother-daughter story this entire time. It wasn't a love triangle. It really was a story about how the lives our mothers lived and didn't live make us who we are. I, I really loved exploring the idea of the unlived life of our parent um, and what they pass on to us in terms of what they approve of and also what they tell us not to have because they're looking mm. out for us. I just always found that to be such a beautiful expression of love, how they want us to have better. So really those ideas then inform the book with how it is today. 
That's so cool. And it's so interesting that both of you sort of had that in mind when, when writing your books. Um, just for the benefit of our listeners who haven't read Well-Behaved Indian Women yet, do you want to explain a little bit about how there's the, char- the character dynamic in terms of generations so that people can have a sense of what you're referring to when you talk about Nandini versus Simran? Oh, sure. So Well-Behaved Indian Women is about three generations of South Asian women. Simran is the main character. She's in her early 20s, and she's trying to figure out struggles in her professional and personal lives. She's engaged to her high school sweetheart. And is in a psychology program and isn't really sure about either. They're both good enough. So she's toying with the idea if good enough is really the bar for her. Her mother, Nandini, is this hardworking family medicine physician who has constantly sacrificed her career and her needs in order to better her family and to serve her community. And she gets a new opportunity that would require her to leave all of it and is struggling with that choice. And then her mother, Mimi, lives in India and is also harboring a secret of her own. And the book follows really how these three women drift apart and come together and really help each other in the end, figure out who they want to be. Yeah, it's a great book. I highly recommend. I recommend both books, but yeah. (laughs) Um, And Alka, quick question for you as well. Um, So I know in your book, you have talked about a lot of the, like the specifics and, and like, I think you mentioned that your strength is bringing the sensory into the writing. And, and I think we really feel that as readers. Um, and uh, one, so one thing that I was so curious about was when you think about a lot of the um, the recommendations, so for, again, for, for listeners benefit, um, in Alka's main character, Lakshmi, has a lot that she does and a lot of like home remedies that she gives to, to her clients. And I was wondering about how you came up with the, the remedies and the research required, especially because it's historical fiction. So I feel like a lot of that would not have been documented in a way where you could just Google it right now. And like, it must have required a lot of conversations with like older generations, similar to the sort of research that Simran just mentioned. So like, tell me more about how you actually did that research. Yeah, I think my research for the book, uh, The Hannah Artist, took place in uh, many different ways. Uh, One was in interviews with a lot of people who were living at that time and uh, around at that time. And every time I went to Jaipur, I would, you know, meet up with more people who would refer me to other people and and so on. Uh, It also required reading. I've read a lot of things from the 1950s and 1960s uh, by authors who were Uh, Indian and writing about life in India at that time. And then, um, of course, you know, I I grew up in India in the 50s and 60s. So I I have that to to fall back upon. Uh, And then I think uh, a last thing that I did was I watched a lot of movies from that era. And watching those old movies, you get a pretty good idea of how male and female roles were. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, how people were perceived and also some of the challenges that men and women had in their relationships at that time. One of the other uh, things that was really important for me in writing this historical fiction uh, is that I wanted to write in 1955, particularly because it was already eight years after partition. Partition impacted maybe 14 to 16 million people in India, but there were still 300 million people in India who were feeling the exuberance of having no colonizer uh, underfoot for the first time in centuries. For the first time in centuries, you know, India doesn't have either the British or the Mughals or the Europeans, nobody is in charge of them. And so they have this ability to reinvent India, to rebuild India, to decide how they wanna educate their children, to decide how, uh, you know, we want to do our healthcare system and, you know, the roads and the dams and the bridges and all these buildings are coming up. There's so much excitement in the air. So I really wanted to cover that. 
And one of the coolest things I have found out from now, I've done uh, over 275 book clubs all around the world, uh, but and across the Indian diaspora globally, uh, is that so many Indians do not know about our history. We, mm -hmm. They do not know about this history. They don't know what it was like back then or what people were feeling back then. So it was very important for me to include all of that because uh, from history, we learn how not to make those same mistakes, right? And so I think from this history, what we learn is that Indians are a very proud people, that they have a heritage that is a survival heritage. Uh, they did not just lay down and die and say, okay, we are now just doomed to poverty. You know, India had 23% uh, of the global share, uh, the global market share before the British came. After the British left, uh, we had negative 4%. That's not, that's not on Indians, that's on the colonizers themselves and how they raped and pillaged the country. So it was very important for me to be able to convey this history to people so that they understand that, you know, South Asians are such a resilient people that despite all of that colonization, despite all of the industries that they destroyed, um, you know, India stands firm today, as is evidenced by Sumya as is evidenced by you here in the United States. We have uh, such a growth in South Asians across the global diaspora. And wherever we go as people who are becoming accustomed to another culture, we start contributing positively. We join the ranks of the doctors and the uh, scientists and the politicians and the media personnel and anybody who can influence positively what is happening in that, uh, in that community. So I just, you know, I wanted to also regain my pride in my heritage, because I think coming over here as a, an immigrant in the 1960s, uh, the late 1960s, it was really hard to have Americans understand what India was. All they thought about was India was, it's a starving place, it's a dirty place, uh, there's a lot of famine and there's a lot of disease and I don't want to have anything to do with it. Well, you know, fast forward now 45 years and there are a lot more South Asians everywhere you look. And so um, now I feel like, okay, now I have the language. I also have the support of this whole South Asian community to be able to talk about uh, how strong India is today and, you know, where we come from. So it, the, all of that was really critical for me in writing this story. It wasn't just a story about Lakshmi. It wasn't just a story about a henna artist. For me, this was a much larger project. It was a project about my heritage. Amazing. Yeah. And, and I think that that is manifested in a lot of ways in what I was mentioning before. Like you said, we are seeing a lot of growth is probably the only way to reference it in terms of the output produced by South Asians that's actually getting eyes on it now. And, it, and it's in a way that I've never experienced before in my lifetime. And I think you've been waiting much longer than we have to see it. So I'm really excited that it's happening so that like books like both of your books can see the light of day and be so well received. Um, so that brings me to the next question, which is, how do you guys think the timing has impacted your work? And what do you guys think are the main reasons for the changes that we're seeing in the market today? Omiya, you want to go first? <laughs> sure. I think that it's a variety of factors. So I know that when I was trying to get my book published several years ago, that some of the rejections I received actually took, took me by surprise. I actually received one that said, 
oh, we don't have space for a book with a couple with an arranged marriage. There already was one that was published last year. And, and I don't think that we really hear about those types of rejections as often anymore. It, I'm not saying that they're totally gone, but I do believe that because of advocacy, because of readers wanting more diverse stories, because of the ones that have come out gaining such great interest and popularity, I think all of those things have really come together to show that not only is there space, but there's also a really big desire for those stories and the gatekeepers in the industry are making those changes. I think that's been a key change. It's the agents and the editors, the people who give books a home have been seeing that and have been putting that into action. With that being said, I think it's been incredible to be able to see so many more books by South Asian authors and, and all types of authors this year. And I hope that this is just the start of, of what we're going to keep seeing, that it's going to keep growing and growing and growing. Because again, I think that we do have this desire as a community and as a world for more diverse stories. And we're finally seeing that everybody can enjoy stories from, from every everybody. Um, there isn't really just one type of story with one type of author, one set of characters that can sell. So I, I'm really hoping that we're at the beginning of something great and it has to do with changes made on every single level. Yeah. And uh, strangely enough, the pandemic was very helpful to all of us because uh, number one, my publisher has told me how many more books have sold during this pandemic than have sold in recent years. So the, there's an increase in readership. There's also a huge increase in streaming services, which means that a lot of our books are getting made into uh, movie and TV serials, which is happening to the henna artists right now with Miramax TV and Frida Pinto um, oh, wow. turning this into a TV series. So, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff that's happened because of the pandemic. I know it's been, it's had a lot of negative things uh, that have come out of it, but a lot of positive things have also come out of the pandemic. And then I think that another influence has been this confluence of uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, the growth of the South Asian uh, middle class, both in India and across the diaspora. Uh, and also, um, you know, this whole idea that um, uh, strangely enough, I think it's Trump's idea of trying to uh, limit immigration that has actually called attention to all the immigrants in this country and all of the positive changes and contributions that immigrants make. So it's been a confluence of so many different things coming together that has helped us, I think, on our journeys. Um, one thing I would encourage young South Asian writers to do uh, is to join the ranks of the publishing industry. We don't have enough. Um, we don't have enough diversity in the people who are making the, the decisions. And yes, more agents and literary agents in particular, uh, and also uh, editors are accepting more uh, diverse viewpoints, but they are not yet diverse themselves. If mm -hmm. that if that makes yeah. any sense, we need more people of color to join the ranks of the publishing industry so that they can uh, look at a body of work coming from outside of this country and go, okay, now that is good. That's not good enough, but this is really great. And this is a different perspective than I've seen before. Um, I think oftentimes when we have uh, in the industry, the publishing industry, I know from the inside that they are really struggling with bringing more diverse voices onto their staff. We need that. So if you guys out there, you want to be in publishing, get on board because there are there's a space for you. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting that you mentioned that because I feel like I think similar to what you were also saying, Somia, when I submitted a couple short stories um, a couple of years ago, some of the feedback that I got was that it's too 
niche or hard to like get into the world of. And then I started thinking like, maybe my stories need to feature a white love interest, for example. And so I think like when I started writing more and I started working on the novel, I um, was getting some advice from a mentor and I was like, I just don't see how a white love interest really fits into my book, but it seems like this is what the market's gonna want. So I need to make my brown character have a white boyfriend just so this will sell, right? And then the, the advice my mentor gave me was like, don't worry about what sells yet, just focus on writing your book and then we'll see what happens. And I think like in those two years that since th that conversation, the market has changed so much. And it's true that I'm, I'm encouraged about the fact that I didn't feature a white love interest, but it, it seems like there's finally space for something like that where there's not any prominent white people in my book, but it might still work, you know? Absolutely. And I think that does speak to Alka's point about why we need more gatekeepers who are diverse as well, because, because there's so many different ways to portray a single community and a culture. There's so many ways. There isn't just one way. And, and I think part of the struggle that comes is when we have these limited perspectives uh, out there. So, so I totally agree that, you know, yeah. the market changes and, and it's important to write the story you want to write. And we do need changes in every way um, to see if those gatekeepers can let more stories and that represent our world, our very complex and nuanced world. And you know, one of my goals was uh, to have 99% Indians in, in the book, 99% mm -hmm. um, South Asians, because um, I think that everything I have seen since I was nine years old growing up in this country is always from the Western point of view. It's always from the British point of view. And while I love things like Downton Abbey, they are from the British point of view. You know, there are these big grand houses in England uh, that really were made on the backs of people like Indians uh, who were running the tea plantations, who were doing all of the backbreaking work in India to make the Europeans rich. So um, I think that it's, uh, you know, for me, it's like super important that we have books that really do focus on just our culture alone. And, uh, you know, the only two white people that I have in the book are actually not, not shown in a good light. Um, but, I, I, but I think that, you know, to Sonia's point, you have to write the book you want to write. Please don't insert characters that you think are going to make it more saleable. Please don't put things in there just because you think that that might, uh, you know, appeal to more readers. You have to write the book you want to write and you have to start with an intention. What is your intention in writing this book? Is your intention just to tell a good story? Um, or is your intention, like in mine, it was a much deeper intention. I wanted to uh, reconnect with my culture, my heritage. I wanted to understand where I come from and why I am the way I am, why I am so driven, why I'm so ambitious. And as a woman always being told, why are you so ambitious? You shouldn't be this ambitious, but you know what I am. I always have been and I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not apologizing for it. Um, so, you know, for me, I had a very strong intention and then to recreate a life for my mother. So you have to start with intention if you're a writer. Uh, don't just start writing a story because you want to write a story. That doesn't, yeah. that, that will, a, a, uh, an editor or a literary agent will see right through that. My uh, literary agent said that she gets 100 submissions a day. 100 submissions a day. Do you think she has time to read all of those? No. She says she barely makes it through the cover letter before she moves on to the next thing. She doesn't even open up the actual uh, manuscript that is being sent to her. So with that, you have to, uh, you know, try to have a very strong intention and have uh, an idea that nobody else 
has thought of yet. You have to always ask yourself, am I telling a story? Am I telling a point of view that has not been explored yet? What am I doing that is different from what everybody else is doing? Yeah, definitely. I, I agree with all of that. Um, and I think that that's, that's interesting because I want to ask you guys a little bit more about your inspirations from authors that you have been following. I think like my main motivation for even asking this is that Jhumpa Lahiri was um, someone that, that really, I want to say like she changed my life. That sounds really dramatic, but I, I think she's just a person that I read or her work is work that I read every few years I always come back to and then I relate to it in a way that I feel like I just can't relate to anything else that I've read from my teens into my adulthood but somehow her work strikes new chords with me every time especially her short stories so to me she was a huge role model and she was kind of like an anomaly for a very long time right I think like her and then there's like Arundhati Roy etc but I feel like with Jhumpa and like the specific writing of like you know, the Northeast of the US and at a specific period in time, I found a lot of the writing to be really relatable. But I, I read that she also got a lot, lot of rejections and was told that she's too niche. And this was around like, I want to say the 90s, the 2000s. So with you guys in your journey, how has that been? And, and are there authors that have inspired you? I have a lot of authors who have inspired me. And, um, you know, I'm going to go all the way back to uh, Rabindranath Tagore. If you read oh, wow. any of his stories, you will find that there are very strong women in his stories. Mm -hmm. He is a, a man who understood women. He understood the repression of women. He understood that they had things they wanted to do that were not allowed them. And so in his stories, he gave them the lives that they did not get to lead uh, in reality. Um, I also loved the stories of R.K. Narayan, uh, who wrote the whole Malgudi series. Uh, he created a fictional village in, in South um, in Southern India and, uh, you know, populated it with all of these fictional characters. And those are really just charming stories, but it lets you in on the day-to-day -day lives of these villagers. Um, then I also read a lot of books by Ruth Prower Jabbala. Now she wasn't Indian, but she lived in India with her Indian husband for 23 years in Delhi. He was an architect and she met him in England. Uh, she was actually a German Jew uh, whose family had escaped uh, the Nazi regime in 1939 and settled in England. And so she had this fabulous background. She has this amazing background. And then she comes to India, she settles in, she has three children while she's there. She wrote all these books. Uh, in the 1950s and 60s about living in India. And then she went on to write, of course, all of the screenplays like Howard's End and Heat and Dust and, uh, you know, just, uh, just amazing things for the Merchant Ivory uh, productions. Um, so I read a lot of her books. And then, of course, there is Kiran Desai, I think, who wrote one of the most beautiful books ever, The Inheritance of Loss. I absolutely love, love, love that book. Uh, then there are, you know, male writers, um, Akhil Sharma, uh, there's uh, Manil Suri, uh, The Death of Vishnu, which I think is, uh, you know, a really uh, amazing book and writing about very taboo subjects. Um, and so, you know, I just think that there's such a body of great South Asian literature that people should read that is all taking place in India yeah. uh, I, or, or in Pakistan or in, um, you know, Chennai. But all of those books that are taking place there will inform people about their heritage, will inform them about their history. And I just think it's so important to read that. Uh, people like Jhumpa Lahiri are wonderful to read if what you're looking for is how you as an Indian fit into the Western structure. 
-hmm. So if you want to read immigrant stories, then that's a whole different genre. That's a whole different, uh, you know, can of stuff that you can get into. Uh, that is uh, like a totally different thing. That is more about immigration. How do I fit in? What's my identity? Uh, and, and all of that. But for me, it was more important to connect with the history of India. I love all that. You named some of my favorite writers actually in that beautiful list. I, I also really enjoy Jhumpa Lahiri's works and I totally agree with you, Shabnam. She's someone that I learn more from when I return back to those stories, especially Interpreter of Maladies, I think is my all time favorite short story collection. And I would actually say, because I was trying to explore the themes of immigration and identity and, and having multiple cultures and, and all of those things, I was equally inspired by, by authors like Jhumpa Lahiri and also by authors like Francine Pascal who wrote the Sweet Valley series that I read Sweet Valley High and Babysitter's Club when I was young. And I remember thinking, I'm entertained by these books and I enjoy these books. Does that mean somebody who's not South Asian, can they enjoy a book about someone who is? Is that possible? So actually those books opened me up to the possibility that we don't actually have to relate to every single thing about a character in order to be entertained or inspired or even find some universal themes. So I would say my inspiration actually came from, from authors that, that are from all types of backgrounds. And I'm really grateful for that. Oh gosh, yes. Last year, I read this fabulous book by uh, Min Jin Lee Pachinko. I thought that was fabulous <sighs> oh, yeah. about the South, uh, South Koreans. Gorgeous. Just gorgeous. Because it's really about people. And if you can uh, be inspired by the people in any uh, kind of story, then that's really, uh, you know, the most interesting thing about reading. And then I read All the Light We Cannot See by Anthony Doerr, <sighs> which is taking place in the World War II. Love. And it's from, told from the point of view of a French girl and then a German boy. I mean, just amazing writing and uh, stories that just transport you to other places and other worlds. I read lots of things by other, um, you know, I, I don't know if you guys have ever read uh, the Chinese Auntie Min. Uh, she is mm -hmm. amazing. Uh, and then there's Ha Jin from China also. And then there's a great body of work coming out of Nigeria, of course, by Chimamanda yes. uh, yeah. Adichie. Uh, yes. I think she is amazing. I mean, there's just, there's so much coming out right now. Um, that there really that, is. And that's yeah. so true. I love Chimamanda's work. I think Americana also showed me that, yeah. Hey, it's popular. To, you know, you can explore identity through, through the lens of so many different types of characters and, yeah. and there's an opportunity here. So yeah, I totally agree with you. Yeah. Americana. I only got around to reading it this year, but it was definitely one of the best reads uh, of yes. all time for me. It was like something that I also keep going back to reference again and again. <laughs> yeah. She's amazing. She also did this wonderful YouTube video. If you ever get to see, oh no, it's a Ted talk oh. and it's, and it's called the danger of a single story. And I really enjoyed oh. that a lot. Uh, and then I think she has another one called we should all be feminists, uh, which I just thought was marvelous because it shows us that it's not just up to us women to empower ourselves. It is up to us to also then change the way men are acting around us and the way children are acting around us. We all have to become feminists in order to have a more equitable, uh, gender equitable culture. We can't, it, it can't just be women changing. Mm -hmm. So um, it's just fascinating. She, she really is a remarkable, uh, not only a remarkable author, but thinker. Oh, absolutely. Those are actually two of my favorite talks of all time. I have them bookmarked in my browser. Totally. Wow. I need to check them out. I actually haven't I, listened to either one of oh, them. They're excellent. They're excellent. Okay. I'll check them out. Um, but while we're on the topic of women, um, one of the things I wanted to ask you is that both of your books feature strong Indian women. 
Um, so what do you think is unique about the struggle of the South Asian woman as compared to, to other cultures? And, and why do you think that so many of these stories featuring not just strong women globally, but especially featuring South Asian women are being told now? Well, you know, I was thinking about that. I thought that was a really good question you were asking. And I think that it has to do with the fact that um, maybe there's more of an acknowledgement now about the repression of the South Asian woman in, uh, in that culture. Uh, like I could see it as a child when I was, you know, six, seven, nine years old and, you know, in my own family. But I, and then I began to see it in other families, other South Asian families also. Um, but there was no acknowledgement of it. And if I ever tried to talk to somebody about it, another South Asian person, they would look at me like I was crazy. Like I didn't know what I was talking about or don't talk about things like that because it is up to the woman to adapt herself to the man. It is up to the woman to always bring the harmony in the home. It is up to the woman to serve her um, you know, family. Um, and so, you know, it was, it was crazy to me that there is this whole culture that is treating a woman as if she is less than, even when she has an important job, like she's a doctor or she is an engineer, she still comes home and she still has less power than the, the man in, in the home. So um, I think that there's an acknowledgement now that yes, this is wrong, that we do need to change this culture. And of course, uh, as I said, there's a growth of the Indian middle class, which means that a lot more young girls are getting educated now. And when girls get educated and they realize that there's a larger world out there with cultures that do not treat women like this, then they come home and they go, wait a second, I don't think I want to be treated like this. I think I want a very different kind of life. And then, of course, there's the Internet. Uh, you know, when I went to India last year, like everybody from a farmer to a city girl has a mobile phone. And when you have a mobile phone and you can see videos from all over the world and the way other people live and they act and the dynamics of families within them, then you think, hey, maybe there is a different way to live life than the way that I have been raised. Um, so, Somia, you had something in your book that I really liked and that uh, made a lot of sense to me just in terms of women. Uh, and I think it's at the very beginning when she, uh, when the main character is explaining to uh, this guy, Neil, about why she wrote the book. And she says, um, I thought of doing a piece about how in our culture, boys are treated differently from girls, whether that's in Indian villages or even here. Then I considered researching how a girl's ambition changes from elementary school to adulthood based on messages she's received from people around her. And, uh, and I thought, you know, this is exactly why I have this sister relationship in the henna artist. The younger sister is the embodiment of a girl who has not yet heard those messages, who has not yet learned to moderate herself, to moderate her life and moderate her ambition uh, to the larger world. Whereas Lakshmi, the older sister has, she has learned how to get along with people and has these like 26 rules of engagement, you know, 26 rules of how to be in this world. Uh, and so she's trying to teach her younger sister that and her younger sister is rebelling. Why is she rebelling? Because she doesn't feel that she is less than. She doesn't feel mm -hmm. that she has to uh, temper herself to become this other person that is accepted by society. So um, I think it's still happening today. I don't think it's just South Asian women. It's happening in every culture. Look, the Hannah artist is getting translated into 23 different languages. And I hear from women in different cultures all the time saying, this could be my story. This could be my mother's story. This is my, my daughter's story. 
And so, um, and so this is, this is a, this is a global phenomenon that women are still in so many cultures uh, being treated as if they don't have a right to be number one, as if they don't have a right to, you know, to, to have all of the things that they want in their life, uh, you know, to determine their own destiny. I don't know, Sumia, I'm so sorry. I'm talking too much, but you go right ahead. Oh my gosh. No, I loved everything you said. It really resonated with me. I wanted to write some of it down in my notebook because it's all so, so true. And I agree with you that I think the conversations people are finally having about these things are opening up perspectives that this has been going on for far too long and everybody's experiencing or at least seeing some version of this. You know, I, I remember growing up, not only just noticing what qualities were encouraged, but also which ones were rewarded. And, and I remember always seeing the girls who were obedient and didn't talk back and didn't make a fuss and didn't ruffle feathers. That was what was considered a good girl. The ones who spoke up and, and the ones who expressed their strong opinions, they were talked about as being troublesome in some way. And that sticks out in your mind when you're young and you internalize that when you grow up as a woman. I really think you do, no matter where you're from, you see what are the traits that are favorable and what are not, and you get shaped by that. And that's something that I think makes me so sad when I think about women all around the world. What are the messages they're getting about how much space they can take up, what they can pursue, and I think conversations like this and stories that show women going after what they want and having that agency and having that support to execute that agency are just so, so important. I really just hope we keep seeing more because even when I think about my own mother and my grandmothers, I, I always hear about things they weren't able to do and things that they felt they had to do. And I often wonder who, who are the women underneath those stories? What, what would they have been like if this quality or that quality was not suppressed at that age? And often, you know, they had to make certain choices at such a young age. So they didn't even have that space to, my mom didn't live by herself. Neither did either of my grandmothers. They didn't ever live on their own. So they always went from one home to another home where they were never in charge. And, and even that, that alone changes a person that does something. And so, yeah, I think there's so many things that are changing in a positive way. And, and I really do hope that we keep seeing more and more of this and that these conversations are ongoing. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, I recently did this uh, book club of physicians in New York and they were all South Asian women and they were all young. Like, you know, they have just recently graduated and uh, become full-time physicians. And um, they were telling me, Alka, sexism is alive and well in, uh, in the medical profession. And so is yeah. racism, exactly what, what you were saying. You know, the things that you experienced, they're still experiencing. And it broke my heart because in the 1980s, when I went into the advertising industry, it was just like Mad Men on television. The guys were at the top. They were still doing their two martini lunches uh, and the women like me, who were the one of the only females in the creative department writing uh, ads, were not invited to the table, were not invited to the big projects, were not invited to the lunches where these big projects were being discussed. And when I would say, hey, why aren't I at the table? Why aren't I getting the bonus? Why aren't I getting as much as the guy next to me? The things I was told were, you're too ambitious you ask for too much, you are a troublemaker. And I just finally said, I have had enough. This is not right, this is not okay. This is not how my parents raised me. So that's when I decided to quit the industry, quit the, the corporate environment that I was uh, involved in. And I said, I'm gonna form my own agency and I am gonna hire only smart women. 
and I'm only going to hire women to be my writers and women to be my art directors and women to be my web designers and women to do my event planning. And they were fantastic and they did such a great job and they worked so much harder than any man that I ever worked with before. And I just think, you know, um, if you want to change the world, sometimes you cannot change the system that you were born into, but you can create your own little system, your own little cosmos, and you can make a difference in your own little cosmos. That is how I think big changes are going to happen. Well, I agree. And I also think it's so great that when you said, oh, this is not how my parents raised me. It's those messages you got from when you were young that, that told you, I don't need to put up with this. This is not letting me live out my full potential. And I think that speaks to so much importance in what we're told from a young age as well, what we think our potential is. So that's just great. Yeah, I agree with everything you said. And I just want to call out that like working in tech and finance, very historically male dominated industries. Um, and I think like as recently as two years ago, I was constantly surprised by some of the things that I was hearing in my previous workplace around the way men would talk to me, what they would say, it was completely inappropriate. I felt like I couldn't even go to HR. It was vile it was disgusting and I felt like it was it was so weird to me that it was happening in 2018 still because it's like it was literally like the type of thing you would hear on Mad Men but it's still happening right so I think that was I think that was bizarre for me but I do think and I kind of want to go back to something you were talking about earlier Alka I do feel like generally um this is going to be annoying for listeners because I'm using a lot of hand gestures right now because I'm trying to explain what I'm saying, but you won't be able to see it. But basically, I feel like there is this like maybe like just a an incline. And if you just picture like a line that is going up, that is maybe just women's rights overall, women's opportunities overall. And like, thankfully, they're just expanding and hopefully nothing stops that trajectory. One thing I do want to call out, though, that I do think that there is this relationship of women in art that is a little bit less of a straight line diagonal. I think that that is more of a, a concave than a convex than a concave than a convex as we go along, along that sort of diagonal and underneath it. Because I think like you mentioned um, the stories of Rabindranath Tagore, I think a lot of the films that were produced in India, like Madhubala, Meena Kumari films back in like the 50s, 60s, I don't even know like exactly when, but when I right. look at these films today, I think about Meena Kumari's character was so strong. Madhubala's character was so strong. You know, yes. like when you look at like her and like Mughalism, et cetera, the way she's yeah. like standing up to Akbar, it's it's yeah. not something that you saw again until like pretty much like right now in the 2020s yeah. or like the 2010s. Whereas yeah. like, I think we lost a lot of that as a culture around, I want to say the 80s and 90s, the films started getting a lot more like male character driven and they started being a lot more like macho and it was more like the female's role was like damsel in distress. And th those are the films that I grew up with. But if I think about like my parents' generation and like the characters they grew up watching, it was those other characters, right? So I think some of that is also what feeds the way parents raise their kids because they're still thinking like, no, I want my child to be a strong woman. And then, and I think about the stories that were also written and it was not something that was only in Indian cinema. I think if you look back to like the characters of like Audrey Hepburn, et cetera, yes, they were demure. Yes, they were pretty, but they were the star. They were the star of the film. It wasn't about the male lead, right? So I think just like women's, uh, opportunities in terms of art to me are a little bit more complex than our rights overall. And I, I, I wanted to call that out because I thought it was interesting. 
I think that is a great point, Shabnam. And I think this is why I'm so excited about the new generation of female filmmakers, female writers, female art directors, or, or um, uh, script writers who are coming to the fore and making films because it's their perspective that is really helping us uh, change this uh, perception of how women can be. And I think you're right. I think parents are influenced by film. Parents are influenced by art and culture. And so the way they're raising their children has a lot to do with what they're seeing in the arts and culture. And yes, we do have a lot more freedom as women in the artistic world uh, to be able to create something that is um, more from our perspective, more equitable in terms of gender and racism and all of that kind of equality, definitely. Great point. Thanks. Um, but on that topic, what do you guys think? I think like as we wrap up, I, I wanted to talk about what do we think are the challenges that South Asian authors will need to overcome in order to be successful? I know that the industry is evolving at a rapid pace and you both have mentioned the need for um, gatekeepers to also be of diverse origin. So what else do you think as if you would pass on advice to South Asian authors and budding South Asian authors, what do you think needs to change and what do they need to overcome? Well, I think we just need more South Asian stories out there. So I would say for, for the writers out there, please keep writing your stories and the stories that feel authentic to you and true to you and that are really resonating with you because then they will resonate with readers. Similar to what Alka was saying earlier, if you write what you think the market wants, there's something that will be missing even in your own process of getting that story out. I don't know if you'll feel that same level of enjoyment and connection. And, and I think as writers, that's what we want from our work. We want to feel that connection with the work and the story and the characters. And on the industry side, I hope that we not only see more editors and agents who are from a variety of backgrounds, but also that when those books do get published, they get placed in good places for readers to reach them. Um, because, you know, we can have a book that comes out, but if readers don't know about that book, then, then that's also a hurdle. And, and so I do hope that I see more books come out, but also that those books reach as many readers as possible, because I think that's also a big part of the equation that can sometimes get overlooked. I'm so happy when I see South Asian books get the acclaim that they deserve. And I, and I hope to see that more and more. One thing that I would like to have more uh, South Asian writers do, and I don't think it's something that's natural to us because we're, it's not something we are taught as young women, but to network more with other South Asians and to network more outside of the South Asian community also. The way that my book was published is that I sought out a mentor who had written a book that I loved. So you seek out those mentors and you make them your mentor. You ask them, would you please work with me on my book? Now that does not mean they're gonna do it for free because if they're any good, they're gonna charge you money for that. And that's okay. You need to invest in yourself to make yourself a better writer. So invest in yourself, spend the money, work with uh, writers whom you trust and whom you love um, and uh, you know, get better at your craft. Writing is about rewriting. So once you're working with somebody that you love, um, you know, keep rewriting and rewriting and rewriting until you can get to the point where it feels very authentic. It feels like a story that everybody is going to want, uh, you know, that, that you have put forth exactly what you wanted to say. And sometimes that means delving deeper and deeper and deeper into your characters way more than you even thought was possible. So then when you go back to your mentor and you say, okay, I have worked on this story. Now here's my 30th draft. Your mentor is very likely to say, you know what, this book, I think I'm going to send this to my agent because my agent is going to love this book. That is what happened to me. And I had an agent. I never had to look for an agent. 
I just sent it to my mentor. My mentor sent it to her agent and she became my agent immediately. She called me within a couple of days. She said, oh my God, I love this story. I love this book. Let's, let's even make it better. So that's how that happened. And then my agent said, I am not letting this story out of the gate until it is perfect. You only get one chance to be a debut author and you only get one chance to make it a, the most fabulous debut you can. So I'm not letting this out of the gate until it is perfect. And so she worked with me and had me hire different editors to make it better. And I finally got to the point where she said, okay, now I'm gonna sell it. And she sold it right away. So you're, you don't necessarily have to be the person who is sending things out and getting rejections. Make friends with people who already are networked and get them to send your, your manuscript in. Once your manuscript has been sent in with a letter from somebody that that agent or that editor knows and says, I love this manuscript. I've been working with this person or I know this person. They did this fabulous job. Please read this manuscript. That agent or editor is going to read that manuscript right away. They will not read something that is blind and that they will read the first few paragraphs of the intro introductory letter and they'll go, mm, no, not, not, not my thing. But they will read it if you network, if they know it's from somebody they love. So South Asians, you guys start networking with people, start getting to know people, start getting to know the writers whom you love and say, hey, I wanna be as good as you. Whom do you recommend I should study with or whom do you recommend uh, I should take lessons from? Okay, that. that was so well said. And I think I just realized that it makes so much sense that you were in marketing and advertising because every time you talk, I'm like, I'm buying the dream. I get it. <laughs> I know. I need to, I should have taken notes on everything you said. Yeah. I Don't worry. It's being recorded. We can all listen to it over and over and over. <laughs> but I, I get it now. I see where you're coming from and I'm like, I'm buying the dream she's selling, but I'm just joking. You're not selling a dream, but, <laughs> but well, no, that was amazing. Really well said. But yeah, I mean, it was so great having both of you on. Um, any closing thoughts? Well, thank you so much for having us. And I agree with, you know, everything Alka was saying about invest in yourself as an artist and as a writer, as a creator. And that starts with time. And then over time, that might may also lead to having a community, getting that freelance editor, whatever it is. But, but there is something to be said about having that idea that just has its claws in you. That means it's something that's worth exploring and sitting with and seeing where it goes. So, so to anyone listening out there who does have that idea, who is working on something, I hope you follow it through and that I get to read it someday. Mm -hmm. Yes, we need more South Asian voices and we definitely need more female perspectives on history. So if you want to write historical fiction, I really encourage you to do that as a female because you, what you are going to lend to that story is so different from anything that we have heard before from the male perspective. History has been written by, mainly by men, but now you're going to get to write a female perspective on that history. That is, that's phenomenal. You guys, that is a gift you can give to the world. And I encourage you to give it. Yeah, definitely. And then for you guys listening, if you want to be on the podcast, reach out <laughs> once you've written this <laughs> shameless plug. Um, but yeah, I mean, where can our listeners find out more about your books and more about you guys? So let our listeners know where they can follow you and find out more. So let's see, you, you can find me on uh, www.thehennaartist.com or you can just look up my name, alkajoshi.com and you can find out about the two debuts that are coming up and more about the Miramax TV series as I know it. Cool. So exciting, all of it. Ugh. 
I'm at www.somiadave.com and I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Somia J. Dave. Awesome. And thanks everyone for listening. As you guys know, we are the Cultured or Not podcast. So please follow us on Instagram at Cultured or Not. And if you want to follow me personally, I'm at Shabnam Galati. Thanks for listening.